0: If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to go to John chapter 1 with me again. John chapter 1. I will warn you ahead of time, this service is going to be a little different. This is not so much as a sermon as it is some thoughts. You'll notice that on the table in front of me, it looks different than it would several other Sundays. Our tradition, I guess our habit, our custom at Calvary Baptist is on the first Sunday of the month to celebrate the Lord's table together as family. And I want to do just that. So I just want to do a few thoughts out of John chapter 1. I'm going to read. I just love the power of reading God's Word. Share a few thoughts with you, and then we're going to prepare ourselves for the table of the Lord this morning. Last week, I started into this passage passage of John 1. I'm going to preach through the gospel of John by God's grace as He gives me strength. Last week, I started out by asking you a question. And that question was, how would you introduce Jesus? So if somebody asked you, who is Jesus, how would you introduce him? And ultimately, we learned that John starts out in his gospel by emphatically saying, Jesus is God. And I need to make sure we all understand that because this table means nothing if you don't believe and really hold on to the fact that Jesus is God. He is human. He came into creation. He came as one of us. He felt things. He suffered things. He endured things. He could bleed. He, he did all those things. He grew in wisdom and, and stature, as Luke tells us. He experienced all those things as a son, as a stepbrother, as, as, as all those types of things. But never lose sight of the fact that he was God. He was and is God in the flesh. And so today on this first Sunday of October, as you've all seen, we've just prayed over the Churchill family as we celebrate the Lord's table. I just want to read these 18 verses, and I want to nail down a little further three big ideas about Jesus. Okay, and you can find them in my title. As we come to the table of the Lord, I want to just encourage you with this. Jesus is God, Jesus is creator, and finally, Jesus is savior. And if he's not all three, then this is a useless exercise. It means nothing. It is simply nothing more than a weird religious rite and ritual that we have. But if he is Jesus, and if he is the creator, and he is the savior... And I pray that today this will be special beyond your imagination. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1, where the apostle writes and says, In the beginning, very reminiscent, remember, of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God said, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus is God. Here, Jesus is the Word. In two weeks' time, when I preach again, it, we'll learn about this word. It's the Logos. He is the Word. Verse 2 He was in the beginning with God. Now, notice Jesus is the Creator. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If you see it and it was made, Jesus made it. Now, verse 4 and 5 Jesus is the Savior. In Him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I can't wait to unpack that for you in two weeks. But this tells you everything you need to know. Now, remember, we got a commercial. Now we're going to hear about John the Baptist. In verse 6 and 7 and 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So John was sent to tell us about Jesus. He was a witness about the light and all that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now we're back to Jesus again. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. There's Jesus as creator again. Yet here's the tragedy. Yet the world did not know him. John explains it further. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Verse 12 is hope, it's the gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice how you're a child of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of mind. Man, so it's not, you can't be born into it. You can't will yourself into it. Others can't will you into it. It has to be of God. God does it. You got no credit to take. You got nothing to brag about except Jesus Christ himself. Now notice verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There is both humanity and divinity collide. Notice the beginning. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God in the flesh. Jesus became flesh. Now notice we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. There's His divinity full of grace and truth and then again commercial John the Baptist verse 15 John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me here is John declaring Jesus is God he's better he ranks more than, than me because he was before me yet John was physically older than Jesus And yet here's Jesus proclaiming, or John proclaiming that Jesus is before him. So verse 16 now to 18, for from his fullness, what fullness do you think John's talking about if it isn't his divinity? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, here's the full sum total of it. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's Jesus again. J.M. Boyce puts it so well when he muses about the Gospel of John. He says, I think that John would have done very well in one of our universities, down at Memorial Today maybe, See, when you write a paper in a university, the best way to do it, although you can't be more subtle than this, is to say in your opening paragraph what it is that you're setting out to prove. Then prove it. Then when you get to the end, sum it all up and say, see, I did it. It's just what I said I would do at the beginning. And that's exactly what John does in his gospel. He starts out in the first two verses stating that Jesus Christ is God. And then he spends 21 chapters. And then when he gets to the end, he says that the things written in this book were written so that you and I, his readers, might know that Jesus Christ is God and that we might believe on him. And, folks, this is important because if Jesus isn't God, then this is just a a memorial for a martyr. And that's all it is. We're celebrating the death of a martyr. But if he's God, then this table represents life and hope and eternity. So remember that last week we focused on the fact that Jesus is eternal, he's eternal. Remember, I put that uh, quote by Andrew Patterson who said, forget your ideas about Jesus, the philosopher or Jesus, the example or Jesus, the moralist. See, this is what Gandhi loved. And this is what even uh, I think it was Thomas Jefferson loved. He used to always say, just give me a red letter Bible and I'd be happy as if only the red letters in your New Testament was the Bible. But it's all your Bible. He says, if you want to know who Jesus really is, then you have to grasp that he is nothing less than God. He's more than just moralism. He's more than just a philosophy or way of life. We saw that as the eternal God, Jesus is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He needs nothing, and he's unchangeable. Huh. Jesus Christ is the person of the Godhead by which we, the world, see God and know him. That's what it is. That's who he is. You see, Jesus communicates by his life and his word All that you and I need to know about God. There is nothing that you need to know about God that you cannot find in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. God has no limits. Right? Look at verse 5 of John 1 again. Right? In him was life and, and and, and the light was not overcome by the darkness. We will get to this in the next couple of weeks. But remember, God can do anything. He has absolute power. And God knowing all things means he also has ordained power. And again, that's this table. So remember I told you last week in Mark 14, 36, as Jesus suffers in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's him claiming God's absolute power. He realizes if God wants The son doesn't have to die. But then he also says, yet not what I will, but what you will. So that's submission to God's ordained power. In other words, Jesus himself communicates that God can do anything, but God has a plan. He tells us right from the start that Jesus is God with absolute power, but as God there's a plan to that absolute power, an ordained power, power which will make sense as you view the suffering of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, the persecution of Jesus. When you see that Jerusalem is destroyed and you see that Rome is rejecting that Jesus is still God, Jesus still has a plan and the plan hasn't stopped. Last week, I read an article by Barnabas Piper, who is the son of John Piper. And I thought this was really good for us as we come to the table of the Lord. Some of you here in this room and downstairs uh, love to cook and even want to fancy yourselves as chefs. You're interested and you go to shows and you go to restaurants and you read the cookbooks and you go to that blessed sanctuary that is Pinterest. And you learn all these types of things. Me, I learn about cooking food from Facebook, things that says Tasty Great or something like that. And I watch it in about 30 seconds and then think I can pull it all together. But how often do we live life and do we even come to the table of the Lord with this attitude? Sir, this isn't what I ordered. Please take it back. And this has happened to me a couple of times where I made an order and the waiter or waitress comes to me very confidently and gives me an entirely different meal than what I ordered. And the first thing I do this isn't what I ordered. And then I make a decision. Do I tell them to take it back because then they're mortified and embarrassed? And then I got to ask myself, do I want to make them feel bad? And then they're likely going to have to give me my meal for free. And and I'm worrying out my Christianity and all these types of things and trying to be a good testimony. And yet my flesh going, this is not what I ordered. Hmm. But it's funny because often, sir, this isn't what I ordered. Please take it back is exactly the way I pray. Piper says this, we come to God with God. I know I asked for increased faith, but this thing you have given to me to actually increase it, not awesome. So please take it back. God, I wanted the problem fixed. I didn't want to learn and grow through the problem. So please take it back. God, I want to feel better and be happy, not learn that there's something deeper and more lasting than feeling nice when I cling to you. So please take it back. This is not what I ordered as if God is a waiter serving up a made-to-order dishes from a cosmic kitchen. Piper says, I am so presumptuous. How often do we come to the table of the Lord and not realize that God's not the waiter, he's the chef? And what's more, Piper goes on to say, is he is the chef who knows precisely what meal will satisfy if we simply trust him. He hears our wishes, he recognizes our desires, But he knows what's best for us. And if you're parents, you know this. Have you not come down sometimes with the kids at breakfast and you want to be that great little loving parent? You go, so kids, what do you want for breakfast? And somebody goes, McDonald's or ice cream or pizza or brownies. And you're laughing because you've done it. And then a good parent says, well, I know what you want and what you wish for. But since I also know what's good for you, You'll have cream of wheat without sugar or cream on it. Just little nodule thingies that float around in your mouth. And our kids, they screw I remember from my mother went on this health kick once when I was about Becca's age, and my mother decided every day before I went to school, I had to have cod liver oil. I did not go to school thinking, "I've got an awesome mom." I went to school every day going. Why is my mother so pathetically mean <laughs> and yet amazingly loving? Because that combination of cod liver oil and mercuricomb for every sc- catch or cut I ever got until I was about 15 did more to keep me healthy. I never, hardly ever went to a doctor, was almost never on antibiotics because my mom knew what was best, even ugh, cod liver oil. We continually, though, try to send it back. And so, even with the gospel, as we come to celebrate at this table, we will sometimes say, Lord, I love everything that's good about it, but there's a lot of it I just want to send back. Because this is hard to accept. Because often, what God is serving is not to our liking, it's bitter and tough and dirty. Sometimes we don't want to be reminded when we come here I'm a sinner. I screw up, I lose my temper, I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, I have issues, I'm messy, I'm weak. If people knew the real me, some would be embarrassed and some would pity me and others would not want anything to do with me. But yet God says the gospel is exactly what we need because he is both eternal and he is creator and he is savior. N.T. Wright, who I do not agree with in many areas, but said this, and I thought this was excellent, he says, the God I want is a God who will give me what I want. He, or more likely it, will be a projection of my desires. At the grosser level, this will lead me to one of the more obvious pagan gods or goddesses who offer their devotees money or sex or power, as Marx or Freud or Nietzsche pointed out. All idols started out life as the God somebody wanted. But nobody falls down on their face before the God they wanted. Nobody trembles at the word of the homemade God. Nobody goes out with fire in their belly to heal the sick and clothe the naked and teach the ignorant and feed the hungry. Because the God they wanted was there, they are more likely to stay at home with their feet up. So, who is your God Or God today? What does this table mean to us all today? How much do you and I think about what all this means? What are we acknowledging about Jesus? What are we admitting about ourselves? What is this meant to cause you and I to think and to feel and how to react to God, ourselves, and each other? And so remember, Jesus is divine. He's divine. And I love this. I'm reading this book by Mark Jones. He sums it up. I said it last week. To understand what it means for Jesus to be God is to understand how remarkable is his self-giving love for his bride. In need of nothing, Jesus was in need of nothing. He gave us his rights and privileges in order to save those who have nothing. You don't come with anything to God. You don't have a thing to offer him. You can't even say, I just offer you myself. He doesn't need it. But so he does that so that they might obtain all that he surrendered. So he gives up everything not needing to. And that's why for me, the best definition of grace, a lot of people will say grace is, an, is unmerited favor. So when, when someone gives you what you don't deserve. But it's more than that. Jesus is divine and as creator and savior, Jesus not only gives us what we don't deserve, but he gives us what we don't deserve and he's not obligated to. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to. And so truly, Paul was right, wasn't he? In Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine, when he says, "But thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift." You got to realize that Jesus is Creator. He is the creator. R.C. Sproul makes this observation. John goes on to write about all the things that were made through him in verse 3. Jesus is now identified as the incarnation, God in the flesh, that member of the Trinity by whom and for whom and in whom all things were made. In this extraordinary statement, John says, the one I'm going to tell you about, the one in whom there is life, the one in whom I want you to believe is the one who created you in the first place. Basically, John's saying, when you recognize that Jesus is God and you just trust, you're basically going, I know you are my creator, so I will trust you. Do you know how many times I've asked all three of my kids to trust me simply because I'm their dad? Many times. Because I love them. I'm desperate to do what's good for them. And yet I'm imperfect. I fail. I'm selfish. God, our Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is our creator. And so think about all of the word of God says. In Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17, by, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That is both the cosmicness of it and the minuteness of it. It was R.C. Sproul who said, In God's creation there's not one maverick molecule. In fact, in my studies about this, I learned that we have, what we, as far as Einstein and the, and the uh, telescopes tell us, we have seen about up to a tenth of what we think the universe might be. But we think there's about uh, 100 billion stars in a galaxy, and we're pretty sure there's at least 10 million or more galaxies. And when you add it all up, you get to some incredible number that just in stars in the galaxies that we know of, there's likely somewhere, and this is a word, apparently this is a number, it's 10 octillion which is apparently a 10 with 22 zeros after it. And the psalmist tells us that Jesus has named all the stars. So is that grand? But then Matthew tells us that he knows the hairs of your head. It's that specific. And so Revelation states in Revelation 4:11, you are worthy our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power why for you created all things notice this and by your will they were created and have their being. And Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our savior. He's your God and your creator and your savior. Here's three things about this as we come to the table of the Lord. Jesus is life. John 1, four, In him was life. And Jesus is the answer to life. Jesus isn't just the answer to what you think your perceived needs are. He's the chef, remember? He's the answer to your needs. What they really are. And Jesus has the power over life. His and mine. Now let me give you the grandiosis as we come to the table of the Lord. Revelation 21. Now everybody loves the first part of Revelation 21. It is often read at funerals. Although it's a bit morbid, but it is, you know, and he shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there'll be no more sorrow and no more crying and no more death and no more weeping and all. But we forget to get towards the end of the chapter, okay? In Revelation 21, 22, John says, and I saw no temple in the city. So there's this beautiful new Jerusalem coming down from God, right? The bride. And he says, why is there no temple in the city? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty. Notice this, and the lamb, That's Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. Remember in John 1, verses 1 to 18, how often Jesus is called the light and the darkness can overcome the light. Now notice this, by its light, the light of the lamb will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. If you are a southern gospel person, you've listened to David Phelps, no more night, no more night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But notice this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, it's funny to me how many people want to go to heaven, but they don't realize where heaven is. Heaven is where God is, where God's will and way and His holiness and everything about Him is done His way. See, everybody wants what the rich young ruler wants. How do I get to live with all my stuff and live forever? And Jesus calls him out on that. This table before us is meant to remind us that of this reality but it does give us some final observations and warnings. You see, to know Jesus is to have life eternal. Remember Jesus in John 17 in that prayer said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you want to have eternal life, know Jesus. But to reject that is to our doom and our ruin. In John 8, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. Now, what's the premise of that? For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you won't believe that Jesus is God and creator and savior, you'll die in your sins. We love John 3, 16, but we fail to read to the end of the chapter. John chapter three, verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now notice what it says. It says it remains on him. It's not like you're neutral and either you become good or you fall to bad. We're born bad. We're born bad. But Jesus also has a lot to say about joy and life. And that's what I want this table to be for us this morning. In fact, John uses the word life 36 times in his gospel in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. <laughs> Jesus gives joy and life. Jesus is God. He's creator and savior. And I want you to allow me to illustrate it. And then we're going to the table of the Lord. You see, Folks often think that coming to Jesus is going to take all the fun out of your life. And be honest, that life will be boring because sin looks so appealing. And I mean, think of the way every one of you in the last seven days have been bombarded with commercials. When you watch commercials, especially alcohol, beer always makes it feel, if you crack the can, a party instantly breaks forth and everybody is in perfect shape. And girls always want you, and men are always hot, and everybody has a pool, and everybody wants to play games in the pool. And there's always some sort of cool little ice thing, and and all you gotta do is just crack the can. And it just shows everything's great, you're wanted, and you're desired, and everybody's happy, and instantaneously people show up and whisk you off to concerts. And I have never had that happen. I've cracked cans and been pathetically lonely. Or what about, I love this one, RVs. Commercials for the RVs. Just buy an RV. The stars twinkle and it's always clear and you're always near sand dunes and everybody wants to drive in their buggies and the kids are always well behaved. I've gone camping in RVs. I've looked like I had leprosy from the mosquito bites. It rained like Noah's Ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Everything got stuck in the mud. I had sand and stuff in every crevice and orifice of my body. It took me 18 months to get back out. And I fought more with my wife and my children. And I needed to come home to survive and have a good marriage. The commercials just didn't get it right. But you know, it's funny to me and ironic that the Mormons did a series of commercials that caught everyone off guard. Remember those commercials a few years back? When the Mormons did these commercials focused on Forgiveness and family and what it meant to just be people and be normal and make mistakes and no acceptance. Do you know it was the largest form of evangelism the Mormons ever knew? And they don't know the truth. They used a truth. And here as Christians, we have it all in front of us. So, Satan and the world, even your body, will lie to you. Have fun, indulge, you deserve it. But you don't see that sin dampens and deadens our ability to know joy. Just ask any addict. When I was in Russia, I got to attend a halfway house, and everybody in there, every man that was in there, had been an alcoholic or a drug addict of some sort. And I remember sitting down and dialoguing with two of the men. One man had killed his wife in an addicted state and had found Jesus Christ in prison. And he said to me, he said, Pastor Steve, the first high was the best high I ever had. And then I spent my life trying to replicate that high and never could. And I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. That's what it does. All sin. Have an affair. Get drunk. Get high. Release your anger as if you're releasing the kraken. And all that happens is despair and regret and consequence. But you see, Jesus Christ awakens. G. Campbell Morgan talking about himself as a boy, meeting an older man who he had known was a great indulger of sin. In fact, he was a real sinner, the sinner sinner. But as a boy, Campbell said, this guy came to know God through the ministry of his dad. He came to know Jesus as God, eternal creator and savior. And Morgan, G. Campbell Morgan ran into the man at the park, not many weeks after he came to Christ. And he was in the park and he was simply standing on the pathway, staring at something and tears were rolling down his cheeks and a smile that made his face look angelic. And Morgan ran up to him and introduced him. He said, sir, what are you doing? And he was staring at a leaf. And he looked at Morgan with tears running down and he says, I'm staring at the beauty of God. Now contrast that with Charles Darwin, the father of modern evolution, who wrote about the, the whole survival of the fittest. What you might not know about Darwin is towards the end of his life, he turned his back on God, lived only for himself, spent his years denying God. But at the end of his life, in his own biographies that are written about him, he ended up denying his own theory. And in his biography, he admits that he no longer got anything out of poetry or music or art. Life had lost meaning and joy. And he died unhappy, unfulfilled, and without hope. See, Paul Tripp puts it best. The peace and rest for which your heart longs is never found in people or things, but in the presence, power, and promises of your Savior. Arthur W. Pink One of the great students of the gospel has written in this book, we are shown that one who was heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds who walked this earth for 33 years, who was crucified at Calvary, he rose in triumph from the grave and who for 40 days later departed from the scenes was none other than the Lord of glory. Jesus is God. He is creator. And he is savior. And that means that God can be known. This table is only important if you believe I, I know who this table's about. Because I know Jesus, thus I can know God. John 1.14 tells us this. He has made him known. It means that Jesus knows us. He knows you just as as you are. He's more than, just. we learned that old Southern gospel song, he's more than just the champion of love. He is love. Whatever he does, he does from eternity with authority and power. He's the light of the world. Jesus doesn't give you answers to your questions. He presents himself as the answer to your questions, your problems, your doubts, your fears. If you want to see what it looks like to be in real life, just look no further than your Bible. Read about Zacchaeus, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. And so the question as we come to the table of the Lord is this, will you trust Him? Will you trust Him? And folks, it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. Will you read your Bible? It means read your Bible. I want to read this prayer in closing as I'm going to ask Paul and Daniel and Jeff to come forward, please. My friend, Scotty Smith, I often do this. I write prayers. He's been very gifted to write prayers, but I think that's a great way to finish this little time of thought. So, Paul, you come forward and Daniel and Jeff. Scotty Smith quoting Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says this. Now to the one who works, talking about you and I, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. You know what that is? My, our oldest son is out at Bull Arm. He's been working pretty, pretty straight. And he called me, he gets paid on Wednesday. He's going to get what he worked for. Right? You've all done that all week. Right? For the one who works, wages are not, a, not credited as a gift. It's an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So this table is only important. If you come going, I didn't work for this. I didn't earn it. I did nothing. God did it all. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes that Psalm. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. You remember hearing about that in the liturgy this morning? Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Scotty Smith says, dear heavenly father. This scripture contradicts everything we assume about the way life is supposed to work. We expect to get what's coming to us. We demand fairness and honest return for our labor, time, and sweat. But the gospel flies in the face of unconventionality, predictability, and normalcy. Thank you for not being fair with us. Thank you for being outrageously generous, immeasurably kind, and scandalously good. What we could never earn, your perfect righteousness, you credited to us as a gift. What we fully deserve to be dealt with according to the wages of our sin, you'll never do so. What we cannot imagine that you would justify ungodly people like me, you've joyfully and legally done. Because of Jesus, once for all finished work, our transgressions are forgiven. All of them, our sins are covered, every one of them. And you'll never hold us guilty for any of our trespasses, not one of them. In our scripture of the day, King David called such people blessed. We call them rich beyond all measure. Thank you for reconciling us to yourself through Jesus and for placing us in your now forever favor. Thank you for not only removing all condemnation for our sins, but for replacing deserved judgment with your exuberant jubilation. Thank you for not just welcoming us, but wanting us. Though we're glad to go to heaven one day, we're thrilled thrilled you already delight in us fully this day. And all God's people said, Amen. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity just to think highly of you as our God and Creator and Savior. And now as we come to the table of the Lord, Father, we shall do as our Lord commands. We proclaim that our Lord Jesus was sent by you, the Father, into the world that Jesus took upon himself our flesh and blood, and he bore the wrath of your holiness against our sin. We confess that Jesus was condemned to die, that we might be pardoned and suffer death, that we might live. And this morning we proclaim that he is risen to make us right with God, and that he shall come again in the glory of his new creation. And this we do now and until he comes again.